0: Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded Thursday, March 3rd at California Crime, a conference on criminal justice policy hosted by Capital Weekly. Today's episode will feature the keynote address from California Attorney General Rob Bonta. He's introduced today by Capital Weekly editor John Howard. And at the end of the episode, you will find our regular feature, Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics? And I hope you'll stick around to the end because, woof, this is a doozy. Thanks much.
1: California Crime was presented as part of Capital Weekly's California Conference Series. Support for California Crime was provided by KP Public Affairs, the Western States Petroleum Association, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters.
2: Hello and welcome to the keynote section of uh, Capitol Weekly's cr- Crime Conference today. We're delighted to be able to have as our keynoter uh, State Attorney General Rob Bonta, uh, who has uh, was appointed last year, uh, about this time was uh, confirmed about a month later and is now California's top law enforcement officer. He's got a really interesting background. He came to California as a very young child, lived briefly down in Keene with the UFW headquarters, which I remember going once myself to interview Cesar Chavez down there. He later came north with his parents, moved to the Sacramento area, went to Bella Vista High School, was valedictorian, and I'm happy to say a soccer aficionado as am I, that's great, Uh, went back east to Yale and got a cum laude degree in history. After that went to Oxford, uh, and then after that, did a year there, came back to Yale, got his law degree. He spent about a about an, a decade in the legislature. Just before that, he was on the uh, Alameda City Council. Before that, he had been a deputy city attorney in San Francisco, so he certainly has the legal chops. Uh, Rob, I promised a brief introduction, and I think I delivered, so thank you so much for joining us, and I will turn it over to you.
1: Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for that very Kind and generous introduction, John. And let me just say, I'm honored to join you and and Tim and Capital Weekly. And uh, again, thank you for this invitation, the ability uh, and opportunity and privilege uh, to be with you and the privilege of your time. As you mentioned, I'm just uh, a month uh, and change away from marking a full year in office. And in this role, I've traveled across the state. I've visited communities, urban and rural from cities to towns, Los Angeles to Poplar. And I have to tell you, it doesn't matter where I've traveled or or who I've met with, urban or suburban, rural, Democrat, Republican, independent, every person I've spoken with wants to and deserves to be protected from crime. Period, full stop, end of story. And in our divided world, this sentiment, it unites us all. As our state's chief law officer, I take crime seriously, ensuring public safety is job number one. It's my top priority every day, hands down, for me and our whole team. And I speak with you today as Attorney General of the State of California, a tremendous honor and privilege, but on a more personal level also as a father, as a husband, as a son, like the folks tuning in now or watching this later. I too want my community safe for my kids, for my partner, for my parents, for my neighbors. And uh, we are products of our communities. We're shaped and moved by what's around us, our childhoods and experiences, some of the ones John mentioned, uh, especially those early on during our our formative years. And for the members of the Capitol Press Corps that are watching, they know I often speak about my experience as a child of, of civil rights and labor rights activists, that my parents, Warren and Cynthia, are my biggest fans, my biggest inspirations, and they're fierce forces for fairness. My father, inspired by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr, marched in Selma during the civil rights movement. My mother fought for democracy in the Philippines and together with me and my siblings in tow at a young age, they organized for farm worker rights in the Central Valley at the United Farm Workers headquarters alongside folks like Cesar Chavez and Philip Vera Cruz and Dolores Huerta. Growing up as the the son of the farm workers uh, movement inspired me and it played uh, an important role in making me the person I am. But that's not the only child experience I wanna speak about today. Uh, There was another experience a few years later that that still sticks with me. In 1980s, Sacramento, not too far away from the California Department of Justice headquarters, as my mom was leaving work to walk uh, to her car, she was assaulted and and mugged. Her purse was stolen uh, in just a few seconds. I remember getting the call, hearing that my mom had been the victim of crime, that she was was hurt, um, that she was stable and being cared for, Uh, But it was a deeply traumatizing experience for me as a young boy. Uh, It was also my first real memory of feeling uh, the impact of crime, but it wouldn't be my last. In my uh, 20s, uh, while uh, on on the East Coast, working for a mentoring program that I was a part of to help um, children in low income neighborhoods, I was loading equipment into uh, or unloading equipment from a van after a youth. uh, show uh, uh, an, an artistic show of, of their incredible and beautiful talents. And as I was doing so, I was robbed at gunpoint. I was uh, forced to the ground uh, with the gun to my head and told uh, very clearly that um, I'd be shot and I'd be killed if I got up and moved. And uh, of course, it was um, traumatic. It was violating. Uh, it was uh, intense. And of course I felt fortunate to survive and I realized that so many in similar scenarios, uh, they're not as lucky. It was one of those experiences uh, you don't shake off. And I know this is personal, but I share it today to provide context to the topic that uh, we are here to discuss, to provide background on how I approach crime and how I view crime as I lead the largest department of justice in the nation. Um, That I'm always thinking about uh, victims and everyday people and that my approach is victim-centered. Preventing crime, responding to it, ensuring accountability and empowering survivors is personal. I wanna make our community safer as Attorney General, but also as a survivor of crime myself. I don't want what happened to me or to my mom to happen to anyone else. And we have a long way to go. According to Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, about one in three Californians have been a victim of crime in the last decade. The rough math on that means that over a hundred over 13 um, uh, million Californians have been personally touched by the issue that we're talking about today. And perhaps more staggering than that figure is that only 14% of survivors feel very supported by the criminal justice system after they experienced crime. So, To say that we have our work cut out for us, it's an understatement. We need to get that figure to 100%. Every Californian and every survivor of crime deserves to feel seen and to be seen, to be valued and supported by our justice system. And at the California Department of Justice, that's what we aim to do day in and and day out. Today, I'd like to speak about our efforts and what we're doing to protect Californians at every stage of crime, prevention, enforcement, accountability, and healing. We'll talk about each of those four areas. So first, prevention. The best crime is the one that never happened, the one prevented. As a society, we must interrupt cycles, systems, and circumstances that lead too many to crime. There are organizations, programs, and efforts focused on this work across the state. I've proudly supported and stood with many that are doing this work day in and day out, making a difference, preventing crime from happening uh, in the first place. Efforts like Operation Peacekeeper and Operation Ceasefire in Stockton, these programs take a community-centered data-driven approach to identify individuals at the highest risk of being a victim or perpetrator of crime, uh, gun violence, or gang activity. And they work with them through workforce training, employment, conflict resolution, mediation, mentoring, and case management to prevent crime. And you know, Stockton reduced uh, by over half its homicide rate because of uh, intervention programs like these. Um, and Stockton's innovation isn't alone from fresh lifelines for youth, an organization implementing programs that interrupt the school to prison pipeline for at-risk youth to play as United, the San Francisco Violence Prevention Organization to Youth Alive in Oakland, my my former assembly district. There are critical organizations and programs across the state that are worthy of emulation and support of scaling uh, so that they can touch more people, affect more lives for the better uh, in their work to break cycles of violence and help prevent crime. And at the DOJ, we have a leading role here as well. We prevent crime from occurring every day. And perhaps one of the clearest examples of that is our APPS program, our Armed and Prohibited Persons System. APPS is a critical and an innovative tool to prevent gun violence. And you can't talk about rises in crime without talking about rises in gun violence. Almost all of the rise in uh, violent crime that we're seeing Um, is because of a rise in gun violence. The uptick in gun violence we've seen during the pandemic, it's unacceptable. It's been responsible for tens of thousands of deaths nationally and here in California. The increase we have seen in our homicide rate is almost, again, exclusively the result of gun violence. And apps is one of many tools we have to prevent this type of crime. The system allows us to crack down on illegal firearm ownership across California. DOJ agents and local law enforcement working in partnership use apps to cross-reference firearm owners against criminal history records, mental health records and restraining orders so we can prevent many of those individuals from owning and possessing guns. We are the first and we are the only state in the nation to establish a system like this. It's unique to California. emblematic of California's, uh, California's forward-leaning uh, leadership. And it makes a difference. That since apps was first established in 2006, we have seized more than 20,000 firearms from individuals who are legally barred from owning or possessing them, including in a sweep we did just last week and announced in Los Angeles, where our agents took more than 100 illegal guns and 50,000 rounds of ammunition off our street. Those are guns and rounds of ammunition that can no longer Uh, be a threat, can no longer be part of a crime where someone can get hurt or harmed. Uh, But this week, it was painfully obvious and gut-wrenching. I know not just to me, but to so many of you in the Sacramento area and beyond, uh, that there is it was painfully obvious that there is more that must be done at all levels of law enforcement across the state. As we saw a family torn apart, a mother's world turned upside down when the father of her children gunned down her three little girls at a Sacramento church, despite her receiving a restraining order. And it's deeply heartbreaking. And my thoughts are with her, her family, and, and the community as uh, they grieve and as we heal. This is a solemn reminder of the importance of prevention, uh, that we must do more on the preventative side, that we, uh, when we confiscate an illegal firearm, we aren't just taking a dangerous weapon out of our neighborhoods, we are preventing the next shooting, preventing the next domestic disturbance, preventing the next horrific act of gun violence. Prevention, it matters from youth programs to apps, Operation Peacekeeper to GVROs. we must keep at it and focus on prevention. But addressing crime isn't just about prevention, although prevention is critical. It's also about enforcement. In fact, it's widely recognized that one of the best deterrents of crime is immediately arresting an individual after the crime is committed. If a person thinks they're gonna get caught, uh, they're less likely to commit the crime. Data shows that the certainty of punishment, the certainty of enforcement stops crime. We know that at the DOJ, and that's why we're enforcing our laws. Since I've taken office, we've arrested human traffickers, rapists, and murderers. We've launched programs and efforts to assist enforcement at the local level, including a new dollar-for-dollar matching grant aimed at assisting local authorities in reducing backlogs of unprocessed sexual assault evidence um, kits in their jurisdictions. We've enforced our life-saving gun laws and defended them in court. From our three decade old assault weapons ban to our large capacity magazine ban put in place by the voters of this state, we are making sure that these common sense gun laws uh, that save lives and protect health, that they continue to remain in place and we're defending them in court. We've dismantled gangs in Visalia in San Bernardino and Sacramento. We've arrested scammers and con artists and elder abusers and we've investigated and taken corporations to court when they commit a crime and hurt our communities. No one is off the hook. Enforcement is critical and, and so is accountability. Those who commit a crime, they must be held to account. I firmly believe that. That is why we are prosecuting and securing serious sentences for all types of crime. For example, just a few months ago in Burlingame, we secured felony sentences for a group of individuals who led what we believe to be one of the largest organized retail theft rings ever busted in our state's history, involving over $8 million of stolen merchandise from retailers, including retailers that are are household names, CVS, Target, Walgreens. Those who break the law and peddle stolen goods, they must be held to account. It's that simple. And we're ensuring that as we prosecute incidents of organized retail crime throughout the state, and as we partner with several DAs and serve on California California Highway Patrol's Organized Retail Crime Task Force, um, that we continue to do this work together. Our efforts extend far beyond uh, retail theft as well. Last month, for example, we secured sentencing against a defendant in San Diego who abused his authority as a caretaker. He took advantage of his position of trust and he sexually assaulted the elderly woman in his care. The defendant will now spend the next 14 years behind bars, one of the longest longest elder abuse sentences the DOJ has ever secured. And one more example, last month we secured a guilty plea against an individual in Marin County who embezzled over half a million dollars stealing funds meant for a nonprofit substance use rehabilitation center. These are just a few examples of our everyday work to ensure criminals are held accountable. So prevention, enforcement, accountability, and finally at the Department of Justice, we are focused on healing because a sentence is is not enough uh, from the victim's perspective. A sentence can provide some justice, but it doesn't mean our work is done. I've attended more funerals and community vigils and memorials uh, than I care to count. And when speaking with survivors, it's clear to me that there remains a large gap between survivors' needs and access to the support that is needed. Less than one in five California crime victims report receiving financial assistance or counseling or medical assistance and other types of healing services that can help them recover and stabilize uh, and heal from crime. We must break down barriers to help survivors access these valuable services and this assistance. We must do more. If we are to to secure true justice, we must uplift public safety solutions that provide real, real opportunities for healing for our communities, for those caught in cycles of violence. We need trauma-informed care. We need culturally competent care. We need language access to care for victims who need that entry point of language access. There's much more to do. And we're part of the solution at the DOJ from support provided to survivors every day by our Victim Services Unit to guidance issued to our law enforcement partners across the state in supporting victims. We're committed to reducing harm and, and helping lead the way. Public safety is job number one and as AGM committed to stopping crime at every stage and in every way, preventing it, enforcing our laws, ensuring accountability, and helping victims and survivors heal. We must all take action as we work to uproot cycles of crime, as we work to reduce recidivism and promote rehabilitation, as we work to create a more just, a more fair and more equitable society. Too many Californians, have been impacted by crime, my family included, as I mentioned. And we must do more to advance public safety. We must repair our broken criminal justice system. We must rebuild trust between our communities and law enforcement. We must listen and stand with survivors. We must invest in efforts to stop cycles of crime. We must do all of that while holding those who commit crime accountable. Under my watch, that's what the California Department of Justice is doing, and we'll keep at it. That's job number one. And we're all in. Thank you for having me,
2: uh, Rob. Thank you very much. I had a question. I wonder if I could throw it at you. Uh, given the uh, the impact of the pandemic, because of the masking rules that are taking effect now, um, there seems to be some confusion about there out there about what is proper and what isn't. What is uh, uh, following state policy? What isn't? Some counties. I think Santa Clara County just a few days ago said, We're not following at all. We're doing our own thing. People on their own are continuing to mask. What, what role does the state AG have in making sure and enforcing laws as they exist now?
1: You know, uh, the, the changes to the, the laws regarding masking, as you know, are um, changing rapidly. It's, um, you know, different jurisdictions are taking different positions. The state is, has, is, is evolving its position as well based on the data, science, facts, and evidence. I know I've been with people who say, you know, I don't know what the rule is. They're trying to remember where they are, you know, what jurisdiction, what county, and what the rule is for indoors, for outdoors, vaccinated, unvaccinated, and it's a little confusing. There's no doubt about it. And and part of it is, you know, one of the one of the the facts of our democracy is that um, it can be messy at times. We have state um, authority, we have local authority, and when it comes to policies and practices and guidance and rules regarding masking and other steps, uh, to address the pandemic and to keep people healthy and safe from, from, from COVID. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a two-tier system. The state has a role, uh, and the local jurisdiction has a role and they could be different. Uh, the state could say no masks are required, but that your local jurisdiction could say masks are required. And then the jur- local jurisdiction next door could say no masks are required. And you got to follow all the rules. Um, there, it, it can be a, a little bit of a, a uh, confusing um, sort of overlay and mismatch of rules, but um, each of the local jurisdictions has independent authority to, to you know, and, and uh, the data and the, the challenge of COVID could be different in a jurisdiction, very much warranting a different approach. And so um, uniformity is not necessarily built into the law. Uh, there is a uniform approach by the state of California as the state of California, but also each jurisdiction, each county, each public health officer in each county has a has a duty and an obligation to to do what's best and uh, safest for their constituents, and it could be different county to county. So, our role, <laughs> a very long uh, ramp up, is to provide clarity on um, on the laws. And as I'm hearing this question and hearing from others anecdotally, um, perhaps a sort of a dashboard or a, or a site or a portal where We could stay up to date for folks on what the rules are so that they can follow them and we can provide clarity with that resource could be a role that the attorney general plays.
2: You know a few days ago uh, I guess a couple weeks ago now there was a housing related issue in Woodside uh, where Woodside described itself as a mountain lion uh, a place of mountain lions and they needed to deal with that and therefore uh, they would not follow they did not intend to follow certain housing construction rules that were in place. Uh, to provide affordable housing. You immediately intervene. Um, can you tell us what happened there and if you plan any other interventions, uh, if others on that issue and other localities, other locals are expected, if you expect that?
1: You know, we, we got involved in Woodside very quickly because what uh, we saw, my team saw and I saw Woodside doing was counter to the law, that there was no... Uh, basis in law or fact to declare the entire town of woodside uh, uh, you know it's surfaced streets its stores its homes as sanctuary for a mountain lion Uh, sanctuary has a real meaning Uh, it it provides it's where there's shelter and food and water are provided to a mountain lion and unless there were mountain lions living in people's homes um, it just didn't pass muster and the fact that a mountain lion could be seen in or around Woodside from time to time does not make it a, a sanctuary. Um, and there, the, there, it was an effort to, in my view, to um, not comply with a new state law that had come into place, SB9, which allows at an owner's discretion, if they wish to apply for a permit to, to split their lot and build more housing to help address our housing crisis. And so we thought this was, um, Uh, early on in in the year this happened in February, just after the the new law came into play, we wanted to make very clear that we are looking, we are watching the laws of the state of California and how they're applied. And if a city seeks inappropriately and illegally uh, to fail to comply with that law, uh, we will be there to monitor um, that line and to make sure that people are complying. So uh, we hope that there will not be other cases, but we know that there are. We have some that will be announced in, in the days ahead. This is an issue, uh, top issue and a top priority for us. Our housing strike force is put into place to make sure we enforce the housing laws of the state of California to make sure the local jurisdictions comply with them, to make sure we protect renters from being evicted into homelessness so as not to uh, fuel our, our homelessness crisis and uh, to help uh, make it better. So we are we are right on the on the front lines in addressing housing affordability and homelessness with our housing strike force.
2: Uh, here's a question from uh, uh, listener, Steve Smith, who asked how Propositions 47 47- and 57 have affected crime, crime rate in California?
1: I think there's different opinions on that. And I think the jury may be out um, specifically on the root causes of some of the uh, recent rises in some crimes in some places in California. I don't know that there is a consensus as to what the root cause is. Certainly uh, COVID has disconnected people and, uh, has led to a, a lot of spikes in, in, in problematic areas that we haven't seen before, from um, big surge in um, guns being purchased to domestic violence, both between partners and uh, with, uh, for, uh, where children are the ones being hurt, um, anxiety and depression and mental uh, health issues for those um, across our state. So I think we're still Identifying what the, all of the challenges are of COVID, and, and um, there could be some relation as well to rises in crime. I think for some of the propositions, you know, these have been around for quite some time. Prop 47 has been around for, for seven years, multiple years for Prop 57 as well. And um, I, I know that some folks are wondering if there's causation between those propositions and what we're seeing today. And um, there may be. So I, I am open. Uh, uh interested in evidence, open to argument, want to know what the root causes are. And if tweaks and changes are needed to um, address an unintended consequence uh, or just at, at, at base to keep people safe and make sure you know we're addressing the things that I'm talking about, prevention, uh, enforcement, accountability, healing, then um, you know, I, I'm always open to doing what's best for the people of California because public safety is foundational. It's fundamental. Uh, in all my travels throughout the state of California, I've met with many people from many backgrounds from all parts of the state, and I've never met anyone who wants to be a victim of crime. And uh, they want to be, and they should be, and they deserve to be safe in their communities and their neighborhoods. And we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that happens.
2: Well, one last question. This is from uh, Tanya Little, who says, "Thank you for your presentation, Attorney General Bonta. What is the status of the AG's office oversight of local law enforcement? And does the AG's office have oversight for each county?" Sheriff?
1: The, the AG has a, a, a level of oversight for um, law enforcement general because of the, the pattern and practice uh, authority that we have under California state law. Uh, if there are patterns and practices of civil rights or constitutional right violations, then we can get involved. Um, We also have oversight with respect to another state law, AB 1506, for officer-involved shootings that lead to the death of an unarmed Californian. Um, And we've been involved with um, different types of um, oversight, uh, investigations, cases to improve and strengthen the policies and practices of uh, sheriff's offices, police departments, uh, when it comes to um, curing patterns of civil rights and constitutional uh, violations. And um, so we are involved with uh, oversight for sheriff's departments. We have investigations pending now. LA Sheriff's Department is, is a public investigation. Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department, um, that's another public investigation that we have. So um, the short answer is yes, we, we have uh, a level of authority and oversight, uh, and it's, a, it's a, a level of authority and oversight that we are exercising.
2: Great. Attorney General, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This is informative. This is a lot of fun, and um, we hope to talk to you again. Thanks again, and thanks for people listening in and asking
1: questions. Thanks for having me, John. Good to see everyone. Take care and stay safe. You too. Take care. The worst week. Worst week. Worst
2: week. Hey, thanks for joining us. We're leaving the serious, weighty topics of our crime conference for just a minute, and we're going to talk about who had the worst week in California politics. Our choice was Richard Lewis Brown who was president of SEIU Local 1000, the largest state union, uh, nearly 100,000 members, I think closer to 96,000 members. It's a major player, California political player. Three of SEIU Local's 1,000 vice presidents got together and kept Richard Lewis Brown, who was just elected last May, from continuing as president. They barred him from the office. They said he'd spent money he shouldn't have. He was giving raises to people without telling the board. He had promised a 21% raise and didn't deliver on that. And uh, politically, he wanted to block uh, a major donation, million bucks to Governor Gavin Newsom, who's a big, uh, obviously politically a big supporter.
0: Tim, what do you think? Well, Richard Lewis Brown is no stranger to the worst week in California politics. He has been uh, he has won that nomination uh, more times than I can remember in the last uh, few months since he was elected in May, and I believe that we have been predicting his demise since May uh, because he has been so at odds with the general membership of the union and certainly with the other leadership. And it's worth noting that he was elected in, I think, a five-way split election with a very, very slight majority of votes, but he never had a plurality of support in the union. Uh, So this does not come... As a surprise, as I understand, he is is fighting this and claims that he is actually still the president, and that he has fired the vice presidents, and that they did not have the authority to do what they have done. Uh, the union, as I understand it, does not recognize his assertions, and they are, have in fact elevated, I believe, his name is David Jimenez, one of the vice presidents, to the presidency. So this is drama par excellence. Uh, I'm sure that uh, union opposition, people that don't like unions probably are laughing or laughing their heads off at this. And, uh, you know, we'll probably be promoting this. And whenever someone wants to unionize, they'll they'll say, hey, this is this what you want? But in any case, from our lofty perch here at Capital Weekly, it has been a fascinating story to watch.
2: Interestingly enough, the the constitution of the uh, union seems to be at odds about who can fire who. Constitutionally, yes, the president has the power. Uh, to fire vice presidents but constitutionally also there's language that gives vice presidents power to fire the president the whole issue now uh, one of the board members is taking it to court in sacramento and so now the courts have it and god knows how long that's going to take but um, so this week richard lewis brown uh, as you have before you had the worst week in california
0: politics okay does that do it I think that's it. We can uh, we will now get, now get back to our regularly scheduled special episodes with the California Crime Conference. But uh, we did want to make sure that we included our Worst Week in California Politics feature in this episode. So thank you all for joining us and we will talk to you soon. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive view. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.